Do you believe? Well, then open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Page 1136. 1136 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 17 and 18 this morning. We have arrived at the 11th ingredient in Paul's recipe for love. Ingredient number 11. We're getting very, very close to finishing the recipe here as we've been going through this together and using this, allowing the Spirit to use His Word to help us evaluate our own lives and the quality of our Christian love. And so, again this morning, Paul has for us another ingredient to add to the recipe, and that ingredient is peaceful. Peaceful. Love is peaceful. Christian love is a peaceful love. You know, the passage lately of this national health care bill has certainly deepened the political divide in this country and ramped up the level of political rancor and animosity that is cascading over the airwaves and to be found really from one end of this country to another. This is a time in the nation's history when there are some very, very sharp divides among the people. But one good thing, even though there are sharp, very sharp divides, one good thing is that people are not shooting each other, right? They're not shooting each other. But that wasn't always the case. That wasn't always the case in the history of this nation. In fact, on July the 11th, 1804, a sitting vice president shot and killed a former secretary of the treasury to end a political and personal squabble between those two men. Early in the morning on the banks of the New Jersey shore, Aaron Burr fired a fatal round that killed Alexander Hamilton. The personal and political animosity between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton was great and was well known. They came from two opposing political parties, and there was a deep personal dislike that they had one for another. It was further stoked when in 1791, Burr defeated Hamilton's father-in-law for the position of U.S. Senator from the state of New York. That only ramped up the rancor and animosity between these two men and their political parties. Hamilton later achieved his own personal revenge by thwarting Burr's attempt to gain renomination as vice presidential candidate. And then beyond that, by torpedoing his campaign efforts to be elected governor of the state of New York. The feud finally reached its flashpoint 
on this early July morning in 1804. When there, on the banks of the New Jersey shore, Hamilton and Burr faced one another with a pair of dueling pistols. Hamilton fired first, and the accounts are very, very conflicting from the eyewitnesses, and one of the reasons for that is because dueling was illegal at this time. And so the seconds, as they were called, who assisted the two antagonists would turn their back so that they could later legitimately testify in court that they did not know who fired first. But by all accounts, it appears that Hamilton fired first and discharged his weapon into the trees above Aaron Burr's head. Burr returned fire, striking Hamilton in the hip where the ball lodged close to his spine, fatally wounding him or mortally wounding him. He passed away the next day. Aaron Burr was indicted for murder in both the state of New York and the state of New Jersey. However, he was never brought to trial. He wandered the country, disgraced after that, got involved in a land deal in the Louisiana Purchase for which he was tried for treason. The allegation being that he was attempting to establish a sovereign nation separate from the United States in the newly acquired Louisiana Territory. He was acquitted of a treason charge. He died in 1836, a broken man. A broken man. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Apostle Paul writes for us here in Romans chapter 12 and beginning in verse 17 some very, very challenging words. He says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's important that we take a moment here to set a little bit of context around these verses. For if we fail to do that, we will surely misinterpret what the Apostle Paul has to say for us here. We need to make a distinction between the call that is being made here with regard to our personal interaction with others in society and the role of the magistrate or the role of the government with regard to the citizens of our society. What I mean by that is down in chapter 13 and verse 4, Paul, speaking about the role of the government or the role of the magistrate, as it's known, says at the end of the verse that they are an avenger to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. That they are the avenger of wrath. That 
role of the government is a different role than you and I have with regard to interpersonal relationships. That is, that the government has been given a responsibility for a very specific task, and soon we will be in chapter 13, and we'll examine that in much greater detail. But it's important for now, between this morning's message and next week's message, as we finish out chapter 12, to understand that the Apostle Paul here in verses 17 to the end of the chapter is addressing our interpersonal relationships and how we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to conduct ourselves with regard to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to the members of the society in which we find ourselves in this day and age. Even, it's worth noting for you here, that even the Old Testament commandment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right, that it proceeds out of Exodus chapter 21, refers to the public administration of criminal law and was designed to protect the rights of of the accused, actually the rights of the guilty, and to discourage personal revenge. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a stripe for a stripe, and so forth. What it was saying is that the society may only administer a punishment commensurate with the the guilt of the crime. It was designed by God to be gracious into a society, into an ancient world in which it was very common for a man to wound you and for vengeance to be extracted by taking his life. And so Paul said, or, or, the, or the Lord says in Exodus chapter 21, there needs to be parity, there needs to be balance. So not talking this morning about governmental responsibilities in the area of retribution, the role of the magistrate. We're talking about individual responsibilities. And they're different. And so what Paul has for us this morning in verses 17 and 18 are three characteristics of a peacemaker. We are called to be peacemakers, personally, peacemakers. And he has three characteristics that he gives to us here in verses 17 and 18 by which we can be known as a peacemaker. The first of those characteristics is here in the first part of verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That is, that a peacemaker is called to be absorbent. Absorbent. We are to refuse to inflame a situation. We are to refuse to repay evil done to us by bringing evil back upon the head of the perpetrator. Retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden for the followers of Jesus Christ, and it could not be more clear than that. Jesus himself never struck anyone back. He never hit those who hit him. He never responded in either word or deed in retaliation to those who put evil upon him, treated him so shamefully and despitefully. And he calls us as his followers to imitate his personal response to evil. He said that we are to turn the other cheek. 
that we are to go the second mile. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39, let me read it to you. Jesus said, I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now you have to think with me here for a moment about what Jesus is saying. The vast majority of the people in the world are right-handed. And in biblical times, in fact, to be left-handed in biblical times was a shameful thing. Being left-handed myself, I am so glad we now live in a more enlightened society. (laughs) But the vast majority of the world is right-handed. So when Jesus says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. For a right-handed person to strike another person on the right cheek would require the use of the back of the hand. The back of the hand. Jesus is talking about a backhanded slap to a person's face, which is universally acknowledged to be an insult. An insult. What Jesus is seeing in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39 is that one who personally insults you in such a way that he slaps you across the cheek rather than to take up his insult is to turn the other cheek and let him come back and have it again. To absorb it. To absorb it. Not to pull out a pair of dueling pistols and seek revenge. First Thessalonians, in chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul writes, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. First Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. It is the New Testament ethic begun by Jesus Christ Himself and for those who are called as His children and His followers that we are to assume in the area of interpersonal relationship an attitude of pacifism. An attitude of pacifism. We are not to take up the insults of others. We are not to return the evil that they bring upon us. We are to absorb it. We are to absorb it. Private revenge is forbidden, according to the New Testament. It is forbidden. It springs from the spirit of vindictiveness. That I will get them back. How dare they do this to me? I will have vengeance. And it is forbidden. We are not to return abusive speech for abusive speech. Insult for insult. Tit for tat. We are not to return a strike with another one. Punched in the nose, we are not to retaliate with another punch in the nose. 
We are not to return ill for ill. Beloved, vengeance, vengeance is a result of pride. It's really the source of that passion. It is a wounded pride that seeks to strike out, punish those who have wounded us. We are to be absorbent. We're to be like that lady on TV as they're advertising the memory foam mattress. I think a good number of you have seen such commercials. I believe it's a little glass of wine or something. They stick on the corner of the bed. Her husband's sitting there, or presumably her husband, cross-legged, and she's jumping up and down on the bed. Now, I cannot imagine a married couple attempting such things. But in any case, of course, the ad goes on to demonstrate how the wine is not spilled because the memory foam mattress absorbs the impact of her repeated bouncing up and down. It's a good illustration, though, for us as believers. We are to be like that memory foam map mattress. When, when it comes at us, we are to absorb it, not to reflect it back. We're not to be a hard surface. We're to be a, a soft, yielding surface. We're to be absorbent. Think of it this way. If an unbeliever wounds us, let the Spirit of God use that to awaken within us a compassion for that person's fallen nature. Let the insult, let the injury... Awaken within my heart and within your heart a recognition that that person is lost. Is lost. That's why they do these things. And if the offense comes from a believer, let us have compassion on their weakened nature. And then we may apply the biblical remedy that has been given to us by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. There is a God-prescribed means to be reconciled within the body of Christ given to us there in Matthew 18. Love covers a multitude of sins, the scripture says. We are to be absorbent. That is the characteristic of a peacemaker. And we are called to be peacemakers. Be absorbent. Secondly, we are to be reputable. Reputable. Peacemakers are reputable. Verse 17 again. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Do you see it? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Paul is saying that our reputation in the community is important. God is concerned with how I am perceived in the city of Upland. And God is, is concerned with how you are perceived in the various cities that you live in as well. What your neighbor thinks of you, what your Co-workers think of you, God cares about deeply. 
Paul says respect here, verse 17. Respect. More literally, take thought for. Take thought for. And it it's just stems from the verb that is translated, the Greek verb translated respect here. In its core meaning, that verb means to foresee. The idea here is to is to look out, to think ahead of time, to give thought for your actions before you take them. Think about the consequences, basically, of what it is you're about to say or do. How will others perceive it? We don't live in an island. It's not, well, it's none of their business what I do. Actually, it is their business what we do. We are to be careful to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. Do you see it? All men. Look again at the verse. Expect what is right. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. How people think about us is important to God. What is right Kalos is the Greek word. It has a a wide semantic range. It means that which is good, that which is proper, that which is fitting, that which is honest, that which is fine, that which is beautiful, that which is precious. All of those English words are part of this Greek word translated here, right. Respect what is right. That is, as society looks on and evaluates my life, they need to see a life that is proper, a life that is honest, a a life that is beautiful, precious, right, good. Act in such a manner, Paul says, as to command the confidence and the good opinion of all men, that is, those inside the church and those outside the church. All of us. public behavior. Basically, what he's saying is that in my public behavior, your public behavior should be above reproach as the world looks on. By the way, this is not just unique to here. This idea that our lives are being sifted by the world and evaluated is a consistent theme in the New Testament as well. Beloved, we live before people in a society. And what God is saying that as those who know the Lord Jesus Christ and have been transformed by his redeeming grace, your life is on public display and it ought to show the work of the Spirit of God. People ought to be able to see it and they ought to approve it. Let me show you a few. Turn back to the left, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, page 960. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, page 960. 
Jesus says, 5.16 of Matthew, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your life be lived in such a way that they may see your good works. They may see them. Turn over to the right, page 1148, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. 10.32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. By the way, there are three people groups in the world. There are the Jews, there are here spoken of as the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jews who are unbelievers, and then there is the church of God, that's us. Jews, Greeks, the church of God. Give no offense, offense to any of them. Our lives are not to be offensive to one another here in the body of Christ. They are not to be offensive to Jewish people who look on to our lives. They are not to be offensive to the Gentile who look on to our lives. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, just listen. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 10. Do good to all men. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul begins, he says, an overseer, an elder then, must be above reproach. Above reproach. That is, there cannot be anything in the life of an elder that people can grab hold of in their character. They have to be exemplary in their character. Not perfect, but there cannot be glaring holes or weaknesses. Further, verse 7, Paul says, speaking of the qualifications of an elder, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. My character as an elder of Foothill Bible Church is on display in the community, and it is a legitimate and valid God-ordained point of measurement for me as an elder, as it is for the rest of the men here. That's why, by the way, entrance into the elder training program at Foothill Bible Church requires, for both elders and deacons, it requires personal references. We ask the candidates to supply personal references to us, and we check those references. And we not only check the references they supply, but we ask the references to supply references that we might check them, and then Occasionally, we ask the references to supply references to supply references so that we might check them. Why do we do that? Because you and I both know that when someone asks you for references, you give the guy who's going to say nice things about you, right? We already know nice things. We want to know if those nice things are true. So we go beyond. Interestingly, 1 Timothy 5.14 talking about widows who are eligible to be enrolled on the church's welfare roles, their, their benevolence ministry roles. He says, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy 
no occasion for reproach. That is, that the younger widows are not to be enrolled on the list because if they are, Paul says, that they will, they will use their time in such a way that brings reproach on the church of God. So they need to get married, have kids, keep house, and, and bring God glory in society. Fascinating. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they, are slander, well, they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Or how about this one? Page 1213. Turn over there to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, page 1213, actually three fifth, chapter 3, verse 15. We like 1 Peter 3.15. speaks about apologetics. The need to argue the faith in front of the unbelieving world. Right? Sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience Verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Is there a place to engage in apologetics and defend the faith, bring forth the arguments and show them the the truth of the gospel and the the fallacy of their own worldview? Of course. Of course. In gentleness. In reverence. Good behavior. So that when they examine your life, they don't see someone who just likes to argue. They see someone whose life has been transformed by the Prince of Peace. A peaceful man. Beloved, the the reality that, that Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, is is really nothing more than living out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are wretched sinners. There is no good thing in us, nothing to commend us to God. But God, in His mercy and grace, has placed the guilt of our sin upon His own innocent Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His execution satisfies the call for justice. And Christ's perfect behavior is credited to our account, and we now have the righteousness necessary to enter into the presence of God. We are in Christ, perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. But it is not just a legal transaction. There is a a reality that occurs in the human heart when we are redeemed. The Spirit of God comes to live within us. The power of God Almighty resides within us and He is transforming us and giving us both the desire and the power to begin to live His life. To be absorbent. To be reputable. As our Savior was 
absorbent and reputable. What Paul's saying here, go back to Romans 12, if you're not there already. What Paul is saying here is that when we act in a manner that violates the accepted societal standards of morality, then we bring reproach upon Christ and His church. We are being measured by our neighbors. And they have a right to do it. They have a right to do it. Pastor Art tells me that there's a really, in my opinion, discouraging phenomena that occurs in the nation of India. And that is that the court systems in India are tied up with lawsuits. Lawsuits filed by Christians, at least those who call themselves Christians, suing other Christians over property disputes. It stems back to the fact that when the missionaries came there and churches were first planted and local pastors raised up, the church properties were in the name of the pastor. And then when the pastor dies, his heirs want the property and take each other to court over it. So the court systems are bogged down with Christians suing Christians in order to gain worldly possessions. Beloved, that is not a way to respect what is right in the sight of all men. That is not a way to have a positive testimony of a transformed life. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Is that not true? We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are travelers through. We live in a tent like a Bedouin. To take one another to court for a piece of this earth that you can't even take beyond the grave with you anyway? Shame. Shame. Financial scandals that rock the Christian community. Shame. Moral lapses among the people of God. George Barna, according to his surveys, says that the divorce rate among evangelicals equals that of society at large. Now, I don't agree. I agree with his statistics. I don't agree with his definition. How could it be that Christians would have the same divorce rate as, uh, as non-Christians. I just cannot accept such things. But I will tell you this, the divorce rate among the church, those who attend church, evangelical churches, is horrible. It's a scandal. How can we stand in defense of marriage when we can't even conduct our own marriages? Where is our moral authority? Where is our platform? Where is our ability to speak to the culture and say what you want to do by redefining marriage is wrong when we're consistently redefining marriage to suit our own preferences? Horrible. Public outbursts of anger among those who name the name of Christ. 
Go to your child's sporting event. Would those in the stands around you know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not? Would you like to hang the umpire? Is it really that important? Is the score really that important? Questionable business ethics. I spent a number of years in banking. I dealt with two people in all the years I spent in banking who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ and both of them cheated me. Both of them. I know some people who will not do business with someone who claims to be a Christian. What a shame. These things should not be. We should be the best workers. We should be the most honest business people. I see an ichthus on a business card. I don't know whose benefit it's there for. If you're really a Christian, then just show me. Do we keep our word? Do we keep our word? Is it our bond? These are just simple. These are simple areas that our own society, fallen as it is, still recognizes as areas of virtue. James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, gone home to be with the Lord now, but he writes, quote, Our lives are to be lived on such a high plane that even the heathen recognize it. I like the way he said that. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be living on such a high moral plane that the heathen recognize something different about us. Why is it that only the Mormons can be known as good people? Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Three characteristics of a peacemaker. They are absorbent. They are reputable. And third, they are conciliatory. Conciliatory. To conciliate means to overcome the animosity of another. It means to placate someone, to soothe them, to reconcile with them. We are to be conciliatory. We are to placate people. We are to soothe over problems. We are to be reconciled to people. We are to take away the animosity. Now, it is inevitable as followers of Jesus Christ that we will be in conflict with the world. I understand that. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is definite sense they hated him. They will hate us because of our identity with him. 
So to the extent that we are living for righteousness, there will be a certain animosity that will come to us. There's no question about it. No question about it. And when it comes, we should adopt the behavior and the outlook of those early disciples in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they were flogged for the preaching of the gospel, having said to the Jewish authorities, listen, you figure out whether it's right in the sight of God for us to stop talking about Christ or not, but, but we cannot restrain ourselves of telling that which we know to be true. Jesus is Lord. He has been raised from the dead. And they flogged them and they went out rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to, be, to, be, to suffer shame for the name of their Savior. That's good. But not all of our conflict, and this is the point, not all of our conflict is a result of our Christianity. Not all of the conflict that we have at work, we have with our neighbor, that we have with our family members, that we have with strangers, is a result of our Christian witness. In fact, a, a good bit of it is likely the result of our bad behavior. We need to be careful to go out of our way to avoid conflict. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Do you see that? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's not always possible to be at peace. Paul acknowledges that here. He says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you. It's not always possible to be at peace with everyone. There are times when there is conflict that comes to us that we just cannot resolve it. We cannot placate the person. We cannot smooth it over. We cannot take away the animosity. It's just there and it refuses to go. But let us not retreat too quickly here to verse 18 to the if possible until we have exhausted all attempts. Let us not be quick to conclude, yeah, that neighbor of mine, man, it's not possible to be a friend with that guy. How much have you tried? Not much. We need to exhaust the attempts before we will conclude it's not possible. We have to go out of our way. Not only do we have to refuse to fight, we, we have a positive duty of seeking peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. If I can put it simply, it is that we are never to be the one to break peace. We are not the one to break peace. The other person breaks it, and we need to do all we can to restore it. That's our function. That's our role. You have a relationship right now that is broken, damaged. You're not at peace with someone. Then do not look to them as to what they need to do to change. Look to yourself. What must I do to smooth this thing over? And... We need to be willing, by the grace of God, to do anything to smooth it over rather than deny, other than deny Jesus Christ. That one is off limits to us. 
We cannot deny Christ. But there's a long distance from denying Christ to being willing to take whatever is necessary to smooth something over. We need to look to ourselves. We need to see our part in it. What have we done to bring this about? And what can we do to resolve it? If the fire has already started, how can we extinguish it? Are there limits on the pursuit of peace? Of course. Of course. If we have to compromise the gospel for peace, we cannot do that. Jesus himself says this, Matthew 10, take you there just to remind you of this, page 967. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. There is that place where we cannot go in an attempt to reconcile. And that is we cannot compromise the gospel. It may fracture a family relationship. It may set brother against sister, father against son. It may be. But we need to be very, very, very sure that it's the gospel that's causing this to happen and not our own bad behavior. Where does confrontational evangelism fit in all of this? Where does it fit? I think my answer for this is that let's make sure that the confrontation comes about because of the gospel and not our annoying approach to people. Let the gospel be the offense and not us. Let me say it this way. If it would annoy you to have someone else buttonhole you in a certain way, then it probably offends them too. And you should think carefully about that. Let's learn from Jesus. Jesus was gentle with the woman at the well, wasn't he? John 4. And he was exceedingly confrontational and harsh with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Do you know why? Do you know why a different approach? Have you ever thought about it? It's a question you should ask and answer. It's not a one-size-fits-all.
Beloved, you have a situation in your life today that needs to be reconciled. Is there a relationship that's been fractured? Maybe it's an old relationship. Maybe it's an old wound. You know, sin never goes away by passage of time. Did you know that? Sin is never dealt with by the passage of time. Just turning your back and saying, well, I'll just pretend it didn't happen. They'll pretend it didn't happen, and eventually it'll go away. You know what? If sin could be dealt with by the passage of time, then there was no need to send Jesus Christ to die. No need. So if there is a fractured relationship, we need to go back to it and do all that we can to establish peace. If possible, so far as it depends on us, Paul says, be at peace. We have to do this. Now, these are impossible requirements, by the way. I just need to tell you that in case you didn't know. These are impossible requirements. To be absorbent, to be conciliatory, to be reputable, these are impossible requirements in our own strength. In our own strength. No one is absorbent in their own power. No one is reputable in their own strength. No one is conciliatory by nature. We are scrappers. We are fighters. We are vindictive. We are vengeful. We're all about our own rights. All you need to do is go over to the nursery some morning and you will see it played out in front of you. That's who we are. These are an impossible standard for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, the end of the morning's scripture reading this morning. Therefore, you shall be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot achieve these standards. I cannot achieve these standards. Therefore, I need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to be forgiven. It begins right there. I need the burden of my guilt to be paid for by a substitute who meets these standards. And I need his perfect obedience credited to me. That is the gospel. But beloved, it doesn't end there. It does not end there. It's not, okay, my sin's been taken care of. I can live however I want. It is, no, praise God, my sin has been taken care of. I am new creation in Jesus Christ. And by the power of the indwelling spirit of God, I am going to pursue these things with all of my being. And when I fall short, I will go back to the cross and I will acknowledge that I am a sinner and that I need the righteousness of Christ and that He has died in my place and I have been forgiven. And God does not hold my failure against me. But He says, rise up, my son, and go forth and sin no more. And I try again. And I try again. And I try again. And over time, what I find is that yes, I still fail. But the failures are not quite as frequent. The victories come a little more often. And it's slowly, almost imperceptibly, 
God is fulfilling what He committed to me to do in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. I have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And if you're His child now, so have you. And God is carrying out His promise through the power of the gospel. Through the power of the gospel. If you do not know the gospel this morning personally, if it is some some philosophy that still resides out there somewhere, it is not your personal possession by faith, then today is the day for you to embrace this truth. Call out upon God to forgive you. Humble your heart before Him. Confess your sin and your need for a Savior and flee to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith. And He will save you. If you would like to speak more on these things, I would love to speak with you afterwards. I'll be down front here. We have a bridge class that just started Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. It's not too late to get in and to become part of that and, and to understand the gospel as it is systematically laid out over a period of 10 weeks. Oh, don't walk out of here with your fingers in your ears and saying, I don't need help. You desperately need help. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our hearts are broken before you this morning as we examine ourselves in light of your holy standard. For, Lord, we confess that a spirit of forgiveness, that the attitude and characteristics of a peacemaker do not come to us naturally and are very elusive and hard to hang on to. O Lord, we are quick to exert our rights, self-perceived. We are quick to lash out when someone crosses us, when we do not get what we want or what we think we deserve. When insulted, our Father, we are quick to insult back and escalate the conflict. When hit, we will hit back. Oh Lord, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our transgressions, our shortcomings, oh Father. Cleanse our hearts, renew within us a spirit of hope. And our Father, as we are tested this week, and we will surely be tested, may we exhibit the characteristics of a peacemaker. May we be absorbent, Lord. May our lives be reputable. And may we be conciliatory. For Jesus' sake, amen.